have on a Sunday evening met together to be able to be in uh, our series that we began uh, last fall regarding humanity, creation to restoration, and Pastor Andrew did a good job of uh, introducing that again. This is uh, kind of a, think of it this way, it's, it's, a, it's a biblical worldview of humanity. Uh, what does God say about who we are, uh, what's happened, where this is going? And uh, it's not just meant to be theoretical in your head where you just have a bunch of information, but really that you can connect the dots and say, this is what's wrong with the world, this is what's wrong in my own heart, and this is how God is fixing that, and uh, this is his plan. And so uh, I hope this will be helpful to you tonight as well. We do need to review just a bit because we've been away from this for so long. And so we started this off by asking this question, who are you? How would you answer that? Um, We answered it three ways. One, you're a direct creation of God. God made you. That's where you need to begin. Uh, Secondly, you're created in God's image. That's the very first thing God tells us about ourselves, is we are made in His image, and it's very significant and important. However, we do know that we are fallen creatures. We do not perfectly image God, and we haven't since the time of the fall. And so we drilled down a little bit to what happened at the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. What exactly took place? And we looked at its essence. In essence, we stated it this way, mankind fell by believing the lie that we are better off living independent of God. Uh, This was the essence of the fall, that we didn't want to image God, we wanted to be God. And remember, that was the appeal that was given by the serpent to the woman in the garden. And uh, Adam certainly knowingly uh, took that challenge, as it were, and said, yeah, I think I would like to be God and not merely image God. And so as a result of that, there were great effects. And we see these effects in our world today. There's something we called inversion, and that is Uh, everything's kind of turned on its head. So I I think the best way to illustrate this is think about children. All of us were children at one time. And when children are born, uh, they come into the world with the world is upside down and inside out. They come into the world thinking, I'm in charge and you do what I say, right? That's just the way we all come into the world. And we come into the world thinking, And by the way, I have everything I need to be in charge, right? It's that illustration of the toddler that's trying to tie their shoes, and they could fumble with those shoelaces for the next six months and never learn how to tie a bow, but as soon as you go down and try to help them tie their shoe, what do they do? No, I've got it. There's no way you can get that. You don't have that capacity. So children, we all come into this world, it's upside down, it's inside out, we think that we're the ones in charge, and and part of parenting is graciously helping our children to understand that. Well, that's happened all over the world, right? Mankind thinks they're in charge and wants to remove God from the picture, and there is no authority but my own authority. And God has said, I am the ultimate authority I put authority in the structure of the home and family and church. It's a blessing, and you should live under that. Uh, But that has been inverted, and it has caused great turmoil. Well, as a result of that, there's there's frustration. 
Remember we said that man being made in God's image, was a, he's a spiritual being. We're spiritual beings. We're relational beings. We're, we're physical beings. And, and all of those things have been frustrated about us. Spiritually, there's this enmity with God in the heart of the human soul. And relationally, there's, there's broken relationships, relationships that should be close, like in a marriage. And, and what's the strain of that and the difficulty of that? And it's all a result of the fall. And what has taken place? And of course, there's a breakdown between man and creation. We were made to be rulers over creation, as it were, to have dominion. And just think how much of your time this last week has been spent on reversing the effects of the fall. Things break down, and things grow old, and things need repair. And uh, that's not creation responding to the golden touch of its ruler it's this frustration of cycle that death is everywhere and things continually break down. And so this is the effect of the fall of man. And so we kind of painted that bleak picture, right? And you probably came away from that time and said, man, <laughs> how can it get any worse? But then maybe you thought, but if things are so bad, why are there good people? Right? And we tried to answer this question last time. Are you ever confused by the goodness of bad people? That, that you know people that don't even profess to know the Lord, and yet they are some of the finest, most honest people you know. And it confuses us. Are they really defacing the image of God or how can that be? What, what is it in them that God says is the problem? They seem so nice. They seem so genuine and sincere. You may recall that we had to do a lot of heavy work in the Scripture to answer that question last time, but basically it came down to this, to, to motives of the heart. And again, it's this issue that we want to image God, or we don't want to image God. We want to be God. And even in good people, the good people you know, and they do good things. When they do it, who do they credit? When you talk to them about their soul and they say, but I'm a good person. I, I always do what's kind. I try to help the poor. I try to... Do they ever acknowledge that that bent even in them to want to do good doesn't come from them. It's a part of their being in God's image. That's a fallen image bearer, but yet retaining the image but they refuse to acknowledge it. Maybe that helped you a little bit with that confusing question of the goodness of bad people. Well, tonight I want to move on and really answer this question. We're kind of digging ourselves out of this darkness. Is there any hope for fallen image bearers? We still bear the image of God, but we don't image Him perfectly. Is there any hope for us? It's like cracks in the pavement, right? You can see the full picture, but there's these things that are off. And will that ever be restored? Is there any, any life there? Well, I think this begs the question, how has humanity tried to restore the image of God? 
Now, there are people that you would read, there are cultures that we know of, even our own culture, and I don't think anyone would come right out and say, here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to restore the perfect image of God and humanity. Unconverted people or people that have no biblical worldview, they just say things like this, here's how we can reform society. Here's how we can make things better. Here's how we can evolve as a species. In essence, when they say things like that, from a biblical perspective, what they're saying is, here's how we would want to restore this image of God, this, this ideal that we have of people living in a society that really loves and cares for each other. And so what is the answer to that? Cultures and societies have made attempts to restore the image of God, albeit unknown, unbeknownst to them, in a variety of ways. How? Well, I did what you would do. I asked chat GPT, right? And I said, how can we reform society? Give me an answer. And here's the answer. Reforming society involves addressing various aspects such as education, justice, social welfare, encouraging open dialogue, promoting equality, fostering empathy can be starting points. It requires collaboration and gradual changes at institutional and individual levels. Now, this is, I think, is a common answer that people would give. How do we help humanity thrive? How do we get along together? It typically falls along these lines. Education. The reason people aren't kinder to one another and don't think of one another is they're not educated, so we need to teach them. We need more education. Or justice. We need to equal the playing field. We're living in a, an unequal society and we somehow need to equal the playing field so there isn't strife. Or politics, of all things, right? We need to get the right political leader. Yeah, that's going to help. Or health care, right? B people just need to be healthy and well physically and that will, will help society in general. These are aspects of reform that are commonly mentioned about helping the human condition. And basically they all follow this frame of thinking. Let's change a person's circumstances so we can change their life. And this is really the secularist point of view. Let's change the circumstances that people have so then we can change their life and we can reform society and people can advance. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not downplaying any of these factors. They do change people's lives to a particular degree. Our question tonight is, is that primarily how God restores his image in fallen humanity? Where does he begin? So we're in an election year, as you well know. Just a couple of weeks, we're going to have the primaries. And then in November, we'll have the general election. And all this year, you're going to hear promises from politicians. And they will promise things like, if you elect me, I'll put more money in your pocket. I'll give you better health care. I'll shake up the political landscape. I'll provide better education. And when you hear those things, just be reminded 
This is humanity's understanding of what the real problem is and how we're going to fix it. It's all external. It's all circumstantial. What is God's answer? God doesn't restore His image in us through changing our circumstances. God actually starts that inside of us. And this is something that we would call theologically regeneration. New birth. Doing something inside of us and actually put something that wasn't there before that changes my heart and the way I look at this world so that the circumstances may be similar, but I see them differently. I respond to them differently. This is how God works to restore His image in His fallen image bearers. It begins with new birth. Well, where would we learn about this new birth? You might be tempted to think of some particular New Testament passages, but I want to show you a pattern in the Old Testament that tells us this was God's plan all along. And I want you to go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And in this passage, Moses is is addressing the people of Israel, and he is moving off the scene And he's giving them his blessing, as it were, before he goes home to be with the Lord and they cross over into the promised land. And he speaks of something that God is going to do in them. And he talks about it in these terms as circumcision of the heart. Circumcision was a a physical, external act that was to be uh, done on the, the sons of Israel to demonstrate that they were a part of God's covenant. They were God's people. It was a sign for them. And God says that's an outward physical thing, but I want you to think in terms of circumcision of the heart, something you don't see that happens inside of a person. And look at how he mentions this. Deuteronomy chapter 30, look at verse 5. We read, And the Lord God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. God said, I'm going to do something inside of you. And what will the result be? He says, so that you would love me. In other words, God says, I'm not just going to give you these circumstances that that changes your circumstances externally so that you appreciate me. I'm going to do something in your heart that changes your whole disposition toward me, that you would love me. He goes on, and, and the Old Testament talks about this further. Look at Jeremiah 31. Some of these promises are yet to be fulfilled in what is a coming millennial period when Christ reigns on the earth. But we are beneficiaries of these things right now. If you look at the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, and look at verse 33. 
This is a passage that talks about a new covenant, all right? What would be new about this? Well, there was an old covenant. That was the one that, that God had made with Moses at Sinai. That was the law of Moses. And now this is a prophecy saying there's going to be a new covenant. Not like the old one. This one will have a different starting point, as it were, and a different effect, as it were. Again, it will ultimately be fulfilled in our future among the Lord's people in a thousand-year millennium, but we are beneficiaries of this now. Look at how it's stated. Jeremiah 31, look at verse 33. God says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law where? Within them. I will write it where? You see, where was the law before? It was on those tablets that Moses descended from Sinai with and said, here is the law of God. And God says, there's coming a time when those laws are actually going to be written on a person's heart. And it's going to be doing its work and, and enlightening the conscience, as it were, inside of a person. And notice the result of this. He says, uh, continuing in verse 33, I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. What's the result of this writing the law of God on the heart? It's a deeper, intimate knowledge of God. It's knowing Him in an even more personal way. Look over chapter 32. Jeremiah, and look at verse 40. This is going to happen as well. God says, Jeremiah 32, 40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me where? In their hearts, that they may not turn from me. Again, the ultimate fulfillment of this is with the people of Israel in a future millennium. But we are beneficiaries of the new covenant now in this aspect of the fear of God in our heart. And you see God is emphasizing this aspect of the work that I'm going to do is going to start inside. That's what I'm going to change. Look at Ezekiel chapter 11. Just over two books. Ezekiel chapter 11. Verse 19, God says, And I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes. Again, God is saying, here's going to be where I'm really going to do the work. It's internal in their heart, not merely external circumstantially. This is stated again in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, if you want to write that down. And God says, there I will give them a new heart, and I will put my spirit within them. The Holy Spirit will come and be in them, and that's what will affect this change of the new heart. Now, that's the Old Testament that was hinting at this. And so if you're a believer, you're reading the Old Testament, and you're thinking, when is this going to happen, this law written on our heart, this newness? Well, and then you come to the New Testament. 
And if you were going to go in your Bible in the New Testament and talk to somebody about regeneration or new birth, where would you go? What's one passage that you would say, this is the ultimate? And I'll tell you because it's mentioned time and time again. It's the third chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, so go there with me. Because Jesus is having a conversation with a man who is steeped in his Old Testament. Listen, Nicodemus has forgotten, at at this point had forgotten more about the Old Testament than I've ever known. He is is a, a man proficient in his Bible in the Old Testament. And he's coming to Jesus because he's trying to figure some things out. So what do we read in John chapter 3? We're told in verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Here's one thing I want you to note about Nicodemus. He is peerless as a religious man. He's a ruler of the Jews. That means that he has a stated position. And Jesus, later in the passage, is going to refer to him as the teacher, which means he has an exalted place as perhaps the foremost expert of his day on the Old Testament. This man is peerless. And if it were possible to change somebody externally simply by giving them more knowledge, he would be it. Simply by cramming more Bible facts into their head, if that would affect a change in restoring the image of God, this guy would be it. But he knows he's missing something. And that's what tells me that people today, believing people, need more than just education, need more than just knowledge of the Bible, need more than just a leg up, as it were. We need not just religion, but something more. We need life. And so look at verse 2. We're told this about the man. He came from Jesus by night saying, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Here's what else this tells me about this man. He's sincere. He has seen Jesus do miracles. And seeing those miracles, he's saying, he's coming to some conclusion. This isn't ordinary. This is extraordinary. There has to be something to this guy. And he's a sincere seeker. But in order to be restored to the image of God, we need more than just sincerity. More than just working harder or being more religious or more into signs and wonders. We need to get beyond affirming the fact that Jesus does supernatural things like Nicodemus does to actually experiencing new life that Jesus gives. And that's exactly where the Lord goes with this man. He says, you don't need more signs and wonders. What you need is something fundamentally different in your spirit. And here's what he says, verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, 
he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus is confused. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's thinking physical birth. A man is entirely on a physical plane. And Jesus answered to him, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, if you go to any commentary and you look up verses 5 and 6 of John chapter 3 in any commentary, you're going to get about four different interpretations of what Jesus just said. Some say, well, born of the water, born of the spirit. Born of the water is physical birth, right? The amniotic fluid and how all of that happens. Born of the spirit, that's what Jesus is talking about. I don't think that's the best answer. Not that it's a bad answer. There are two others I'm not going to discuss. I think if you search out the scripture, the best way to understand this water and the spirit is this. Jesus is talking about new birth, and he says, when that happens, the spirit makes it happen, and there's a washing in it. It washes away sin. Because that's what we read of in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. It's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy that he saved us, and you know the rest of the verse? By the washing of what? Of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And I think Jesus is saying that, that that the only way someone comes into the kingdom of heaven, the only way that they're going to be fit for that kingdom and restoration of the image is through regeneration. It's cleansing from sin. It's spirit indwelling. And so this is the description that Jesus gives. He says, regeneration is like birth. And it's birth that is a result of God's work, according to John chapter 1 and verse 12. We are born not by the will of the flesh, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. And it's the imparting of new life to a dead soul. And this is how God restores his image. When new life is brought into that soul, it works from the inside out. God doesn't just change the circumstances. He changes the heart. And through the heart being changed, the circumstances are viewed differently. And the life is lived differently. Jesus tells him regeneration is like birth. It's like water. We mentioned the washing. But look down at verse 8. Verse 7. Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus has given us three descriptions of what regeneration is like. Like birth, it's like water, and now he says it's like wind. How is it like wind? Did you see the wind today? How many of you saw the wind today? No, you didn't see the wind. What did you see? You saw the effects of the wind. Set you up for that, didn't I? 
you saw that snow blowing around and those trees. And when we get a lot of wind, I watch these 60-foot pine trees in my backyard and just pray they fall the other way. I, I see them swaying. You don't see the wind. You see what it does. This is the Lord's point. When regeneration happens, when there's new life, the life of God in the dead soul of man, you see it. You don't see it actually happen. You see the effects of that. Well, what are those effects? How would I know it when I see it? How would I know it in me or in somebody else? Well, the man who's recording this, John's Gospel, John chapter 3, he wrote a whole other letter. And in his whole other letter, he says, I'm going to give you some signs of new life. You know what letter that is? It's 1 John. It's the letter of 1 John, and I'm not going to preach 1 John for you tonight, but let me just give you five things he says are evidence of this new life, this restoring the image of God in us. He says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 29 that the desire to and the doing of that which is right or righteous is a sign of new life. The desire to do it and the doing of it. Now I'm thankful that John qualifies that and opens that letter by saying, if we say we have no sin and we've always perfectly desired and always done what was right, we're liars. But he says the general pattern of somebody that has new life in them is a desire to and a doing of that which is righteous that for which I was made to bear God's image, to love him and love others perfectly. That's why he says in chapter 3 and verse 9, 1 John 3, 9, that someone who has new life avoids sin. He doesn't say you're sinless, you never sin, because that's not the case. But his point would be instead of running after sin, I'm running away from sin. And when I do sin, I feel it, and I repent and turn from it. I don't want it. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, new life demonstrates itself in showing love to God and others. An unconditional commitment to honor God in all ways in my life and to self-sacrificially serve other people. That's a sign of new life. According to chapter 5 and verse 1, a sign of regeneration is trust in Christ, reliance upon Him, faith in Him, confidence in Him. That's a gift of God. Finally, an example of new life given in 1 John is that one overcomes the world through faith in God's Word. In other words, that a believer walks through this world, and if you have new life in you, it keeps pointing you beyond the horizon. It keeps saying, this world isn't all there is. There's more to come. And I'm living for that which is yet to come. I'm not allowing this world to press me into its way of thinking. I'm not following after its values and ambitions. I'm fundamentally different in my nature and my makeup. This is regeneration. 
And this is how God works to restore his image in us. It begins here. Now, you say, okay, well, I understand those things from 1 John, but, but can you get any clearer than that? I heard someone put it this way, and I think it was very aptly said. He said that, that new birth regeneration is not new knowledge. It's not, okay, I've, I've been born again, now I have a new knowledge, and I know things I didn't know before. Do you realize there are New Testament scholars that know ancient languages and study the New Testament backwards and forward, and yet they are avowed unbelievers? They have more knowledge than I'll ever have. But when they come to the Word of God, they don't believe a word of it. Regeneration is not new knowledge. Regeneration is not new, new duties. It's not that now I'm born again, and so now I follow a different code. Now I do this, and I don't do this. And I go here, and I don't go here. And I say this, and I don't say this. Do you know why? Because there are some very fine, outstanding, well-dressed, conservative people that will knock on your door this week, perhaps, and they'll introduce themselves as elder so-and-so. And they will be some of the kindest, most conservative-looking people that you have met. And they call themselves Mormons. Do they have new life? No. Regeneration isn't about my having new codes of conduct. It's not about new knowledge, new duties, new codes of conduct. Fundamentally, then... How does regeneration change us? It changes us with new delights. Remember our problem? We don't want to image God. We want to what? Be God. And I delight when I am getting my recognition or putting my best step forward and when I am honored Regeneration changes our human heart, where in the heart we say, I want God to be honored. I delight when He is glorified. I delight when people see Him as He is. And my desire every day I live on this earth is that I would image Him perfectly, not so that people would pat me on the back and say how great you are, but they would look past the image and say how great He is. Now tell me if that is not something you would notice about somebody. That's effective change when people talk like that. That's exactly what God does when he brings us to life. He changes our heart, a heart that wants to image him, delights in doing so, and longs to do it better. That's new birth. So what is regeneration? Oh, I forgot to give you all these slides. I'm sorry. 
There's all those verses. I got all caught up. Regeneration is the transformation of the heart that leads to the transformation of the life. Now, let me ask you, what do you think is more sustainable? If you bring someone in here and you start to teach them, okay, now here's how you dress and here's what you say and here's what you do and here's where you go and you try to to craft them in a particular image in a particular way and you check up with them and make sure that they follow all of those those dotting their I's and crossing their T's and we're very concerned about that and we keep this constant pressure on them about that. Is that sustainable? It's not. It only embitters people. I'm not saying some of those things aren't important and we can't talk about them. What I'm saying is God does His work from the inside out. And we need to be addressing people at the issue of the heart. And when those things come up in their life, we say to them, well, tell me, who are you concerned with pleasing in this world? Who do you really want to honor? Do you have any concern in your heart that that God would not be glorified in your life by that? Because that's where God starts. And without that change of heart, there will never be sustained change of life to image God. You know this, right? I think if if I went through the room tonight and I said, tell me somebody that you've known in your life that they came to faith in Christ and it's like their life was entirely changed. You, You didn't have to like sit them down and say, okay, here's what to do and what not to do. It just grew out of their heart. And it demonstrated itself in, in good questions and, and legitimate change. Don't you know people like that? Here's one for you. It was a guy, he lived in Dublin, Ireland, and uh, his son was a man by the name of C.T. Studd, late 1800s. C.T. Studd, in his day, was a cricket player in uh, the British Isles. Cricket is boring baseball, okay? I don't know how you can get more boring than baseball, but it is. I shouldn't say that. Um, but C.T. Studd was a household name. Um, it would be, I'll probably get myself in trouble again. It, it'd be Michael Jordan. Okay? If you know anything about basketball, you know that name. And if you knew anything about cricket, you'd say C.T. I should probably say Larry Bird. Right? Okay. Steve reminds me of that all the time. I'm in New England. I should say Larry Bird. C.T. Studd. And, and he gave up his cricketing career to go to the mission field. God got a hold of his heart, and he decided that cricket wasn't worth living for, but serving God in ministry was. Well, his father was not pleased about that at all. In fact, his father was kind of a scoundrel and a very worldly man, we would say. Well, there was a series of meetings in which D.L. Moody had traveled to Ireland, and he had held these meetings. And and Stud's father heard of this guy, and Moody was like a celebrity, and he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to that, mo- that meeting just to see what this guy is like. I've heard so much about him. And he went to that meeting, and Stud's father was gloriously saved. 
and his life changed drastically. In fact, he was so earnest about his faith that he decided he was going to invite all of his well-known worldly companions to his place so that he could sit down with them and explain the gospel to them and tell them what he had found. Well, one guy, a rather wealthy English sportsman, arrived at the railway station. He received the invitation, and he was going to go to Stud's father's home. And he was met by the coachman who came to pick him up from the station, and he was going to take him back. And this man couldn't wait till he'd gotten to the house to ask Stud's father about what had happened to him. And so he asked the coachman, he said, I I hear that something remarkable has happened to your master. I hear he's got religion. He says, tell me about it. You know, is this for real? What's going on? Has he really changed? And the Irish coachman said, oh, it's not religion. It's a revolution. He said, in one sense, he's still the same man. He's in the same body. But the best way I can explain it is he's a new man in the old skin. And that's exactly what regeneration is. That's exactly God's plan to restore in us the image of Christ. It begins with regeneration newness in the old skin and that that would be lived out on this earth for the rest of our lives. Praise God for his work in us. My question is, have you experienced regeneration? We have terminology for this. We we talk about being saved, being converted. Those are all good words. They're Bible words. Sometimes I like to ask people if you've ever been born again because of what comes with that, the idea that there's something new in you and like wind, I should see its effects. I was talking to a missionary that had come through several years ago and we got on the conversation about kids and our kids were about the same age and we were talking about them and I asked him, I said, have your kids come to faith in Christ? Do they know the Lord? And he said, well, we're very diligent about teaching them that. And he said, they have made a profession, but he said, I'm looking for the evidence. I thought that was very profound. He said, they know the gospel here in their head. They've even confessed that with their mouth, but I'm looking for the evidence in their life. And that's how I'll know. Is that true of you? Is there evidence of regeneration in your life? That's how God works to save us. Let's pray together and close this part of our service.